0: section fourteen of seven roman statesmen of the later republic by charles oman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter six crassus part two two generals with two victorious armies were now approaching rome from the north and the south respectively both were able and ambitious and both detested the constitution of sulla and the senatorial oligarchy which stood in the way of their holding continued power but they also hated each other as much as they hated the senate and were inspired with the bitterest jealousy the all-important question was whether they would fight or whether they would prefer to join their forces against the optimates it was the latter alternative that they chose Pompey was too irresolute and conscientious in his own way to strike hard to win a tyranny. Crassus had the smaller army and dreaded the military abilities of his rival. Hence it came to pass that they agreed to join in a campaign against the Senate and the sullen Constitution. They stood for the consulship for B.C. 70, keeping their legions outside the gates as a threat to the people and Senate the populace indeed did not need the threat and was ready to do anything which would annoy the fathers so pompey and crassus were duly elected consuls under the eyes as it were of their respective armies it was a mere compromise which satisfied neither of them for each thought the other's presence very unnecessary But since they were not prepared to fight, and neither of them had a real conception of a policy nor a definite idea of what he himself really wanted, Pompey nor Crassus could not ask or receive any more. So these two ambitious men, masquerading as Democrats, undid the constitution of Sulla at their leisure, meeting no opposition from the demoralized Senate. Without a man of genius to lead them or an army to oppose to the two great hosts of Pompey and Crassus, the optimates could do absolutely nothing. Their one great fighting man, Lucullus, was still in the east, and could not be called from thence to play the part of Sulla, firstly, because he had no wish to do so, being as careless as he was able, and secondly, because he could not have trusted his army to follow him. In spite of all his victories, he was most unpopular with his soldiery. When Pompey and Crassus had been installed in office, they proceeded to introduce a series of laws which destroyed all the main features of the sullen constitution. But, as we shall see, they put nothing in the place of that which they were destroying, and the only result of their so-called reforms was to restore the constitutional chaos and the conflict of sovereignties which had prevailed in Rome from the rise of the Gracchi down to Sulla's legislation of B.C. 81 the fact is that they were bent not on supplying Rome with a workable state system, nor even on harking back to the old democratic projects of Saturninus and Cinna, but merely on smashing up those sections of the Cornelian laws which stood in the way of their own ambitions. If they added some other measures to their legislative output, it was partly to achieve a little cheap popularity, partly to make a show of having a real constructive program of their own, a thing which was in fact non-existent. As a first measure, the various securities which Sulla had provided to protect the Senate against disturbance were now done away with. Once more, as in old times, the tribunes were to be permitted to propose laws to the public assembly without having first obtained the Senate's leave the other disability which had been imposed on them by sulla that of never being allowed to stand for any other office if once they had chosen to take the tribunate seems already to have been removed by a law passed in bc 75 by gaius cata but this relief was a mere nothing to the boon now granted by pompey and crassus the right to deal with the people without any senatus auctoritas was the real strength of the tribunate in all ages secondly and in this point crassus was particularly interested the equestrian order of which he was the patron and lord was restored to its old position in the state the knights were given back the privilege of farming the taxes of asia which sulla had taken from them moreover the lex aurelia restored to them once more a predominant share in the law courts they did not obtain as in the days of gaius gracchus a monopoly of judicial power for in future juries were to be made up of three classes of citizens, one-third were to be senators, one-third equites, one-third tribuni aerarii. But the knights seemed to have secured something like their old control, because the third order, the tribuni aerarii, were, from their fortune and tendencies, much more akin to them than to the senators. Indeed, they were, in a sense, members of the equester ordo this elaborate subdivision of classes in the courts does not seem if we may trust cicero and other witnesses to have made any sensible improvement in the justice which roman juries dispensed it was almost inevitable that pompey and crassus seeking to ingratiate themselves with the roman multitude should hearken back to the most popular and the most pernicious item of the old democratic programme by developing again the corn dole whose abolition had been by far the best of sulla's measures. But to buy support from any class by lavish expenditure, whether from his own or from the public purse, was a regular part of Crassus's system. A moderate and limited amount of distribution had been restored as early as B.C. 78, but the consuls of B.C. 70 presented every citizen with corn for three months without exacting any payment crassus is also said to have given an enormous public dinner to the populace at the feast of hercules at which all comers were entertained at ten thousand tables laid down the streets another political move of the consuls was the restoration of the censorship which had been practically in abeyance since sulla's time the first new censors cornelius clodianus and Paplicola celebrated their advent by a wholesale eviction of sullen partisans from the senate which they could do all the more plausibly because many of the sufferers were men of blemished reputation it will be remembered that the ex consul the associate of catiline was one of the victims of this purging he was expelled for what the censors called luxury that is notorious evil living it is most noteworthy that pompey and crassus did not include in the legislation two measures which any genuine democrat would have been certain to insert in his programme the first was the cancelling of the effect of the sullen proscription it would have been natural to secure the return of the exiles and to restore their status as citizens to the sons of the proscribed whom the dictator had deprived of so many rights the second obvious measure would have been the institution of inquiry into the awful deeds of murder and robbery which had been perpetrated without any shadow of legality during and previous to the dictatorship the reason why these subjects were left untouched was that crassus himself had been deeply implicated in the worst part of the proscription he had put men to death illegally he had seized on lands without any good title and had bought up wholesale the property of the proscribed. Pompey, too, had some acts to his account which would not have looked well when investigated in a court of law, such as the executions of Carbo and Marcus Brutus. They had no doubt been declared outlaws by the Senate, but the officer who had put them to death would have felt some qualms in the days of a real democratic reaction. It was therefore impossible for the consuls of B.C. 70 to raise either of these questions as it would have entailed inquiry into their own conduct and, in the case of Crassus, the surrender of masses of ill-gotten property. It was not till a real democratic programme was being brought forward somewhat later by Julius Caesar that the idea of the punishment of the people's enemies was mooted by the celebrated trial of Rabirius for the murder of Saturninus. As to the rank and file of Sulla's assassins, the only person who ever took arms against them was one of their own party, the stern and rigid Cato, who, when he was quaestor, insisted on recovering from them the blood-money which the dictator had issued to them without legal warrant. Though allied to overthrow the supremacy of the Senate, Pompey and Crassus did not learn to love each other any the better during their year of joint office their quarrels were unending they differed about every measure that came before them and these disputes and altercations prevented each of them from doing many things on which he was set it was this notorious enmity which led to a curious scene at the end of their year when it came to be time for them to make their final orations to the people on quitting office there stood forward a certain knight named gaius aurelius a person of no note who said that jupiter had appeared to him in a vision and commanded him to tell the romans that it would not be lucky for them if they allowed their consuls to remain unreconciled wherefore he suggested that they should embrace in public at this unpalatable proposal the two magistrates were much disturbed each stood lowering at his own corner of the rostra but when the people continued shouting for a long space of time that the consuls must be reconciled, Crassus at least constrained himself, for he was far the better hypocrite of the two, went up to Pompey and offered him his hand with a well-turned compliment. They embraced and parted, and hated each other rather more than before. The humorous Aurelius must have extracted huge enjoyment from the little comedy, The two years that followed the resignation of the consuls on December 31st B.C. 70 are most difficult to understand. We should have expected that the enmity of Pompey and Crassus would have led them into some open outbreak against each other the moment that they had ceased to be colleagues. But nothing of the kind happened. It seemed as if each had destroyed his rival's power of initiative. They remained watching each other and did nothing more. The Senate, which had thought that its last day had been at hand, was able to breathe again and to seek feebly to reassert itself. It had been generally expected that Pompey would choose some important province, and would provide himself with another army to replace that which he had disbanded after his Spanish triumph. But this was far from his thoughts. Before his consulate expired, he expressly disclaimed any such idea, and for the whole of 69 to 68 he remained quietly in rome living the life of a private citizen probably the sight of his rival in retirement soothed down the anger of crassus who had half expected him to aim at a tyranny for he too kept quiet and relapsed into his normal round of money-making and wire-pulling on the back side of politics so things remained the two great men keeping each other under close observation but making no offensive move till pompey was at last called away by the gabinian law b c sixty seven which gave him the command against the pirates in consequence of this commission and of the subsequent manilian law which transferred to him the command against mithridates he was absent from rome for nearly seven years crassus had at first intrigued against the assignation of such important charges to his rival yet when he was gone was glad to see the political stage left clear for his own action while pompey was away he would have a better chance of convincing the roman people that he was their true friend and of carrying out his plans for his own personal aggrandizement but as we shall see all the political intrigues of crassus failed while pompey in the distant east was adding laurels to laurels in a way that kept his name perpetually before the citizens and made it probable that when he should return with his army at his back, he might ask for anything that he chose with a perfect certainty of receiving it. We seem to trace in the doings of Crassus during Pompey's absence in the East a progressive series of measures by which he hoped to commend himself to the Democratic Party and to establish himself as their leader so firmly that his position should be unassailable on his rival's return he had now bought himself a most able managing partner in the person of julius caesar whose first prominent appearance in politics belongs to these years the young man possessed the two gifts of eloquence and geniality in which both crassus and pompey were so hopelessly lacking but at this period of his career he was impecunious and a trifle disreputable no one foresaw in him the future dictator and the founder of the monarchy. At this time he was absorbing Crassus's money at a preposterous rate and flinging it about with both hands. Men looked upon him much as they looked upon Clodius ten years later and never suspected that the lieutenant of Crassus was more than a splendid mob orator and a skilled manager of corner boys. The chief landmarks of this period of Crassus's political career are a series of bids for popularity which failed to produce the desired effect. As censor in B.C. 65, he tried to enroll as full citizens the entire population of Cisalpine Gaul, but his colleague Catullus refused to recognise the grant, and the optimates continued to deny it right down to the civil war. Another and more ambitious scheme. Was the bill to annex Egypt in the same year, the chief object of which seems to have been to find an excuse for giving Caesar an army which might serve as a counterpoise to that of Pompey. But the Senate succeeded in stopping the design. A little later, it would seem that the Democrats were growing more desperate. Caesar's attack on Rabirius was a warning to the optimates that extreme measures might be tried against them if they stood in the way of his employer's road to power but the bill of servilius rulus was far more startling it styled itself an agrarian law but was much more like a measure for suspending the constitution with the ostensible object of relieving economic distress at rome it proposed to create a body of decemvirs with far greater powers than the triumviri agris dandis assignandis of tiberius gracchus had ever held these land commissioners of whom crassus and caesar were to be the chiefs were to be granted the military imperium and the right to levy troops they were to be permitted to select two hundred subaltern officers from among the equites to have power to sell the public lands in italy and in the provinces to plant colonies to take out of the treasury whatever they wished and to sit in judgment in all lawsuits which might arise from their own proceedings. Considering that the law was mainly levelled against Pompey, for it was of him rather than of the Senate that Crassus was in fear, it was adding insult to injury to place the public lands and revenues of Syria and the other newly annexed eastern provinces at the disposition of the land commissioners the immense machinery provided by rulus was so disproportionate to the task which had had to serve and the power given to the decemvirs so inordinate their very name recalled the old tyrannical ten of b c 451 to 450 and the misdoings of appius claudius that the bill failed to pass cicero headed against it a combination of the optimates and the friends of pompey who when allied proved able to triumph over the democrats in spite of all the bribes of crassus and all the eloquence of caesar but the agrarian law of rullus was not the strangest project that was attributed to the two democratic leaders there were many who accused them of being implicated also in the reckless plots of lucius sergius catalina it is impossible to arrive at any certain conclusion concerning the character and scope of the so-called Catilinarian conspiracies if we were to accept in its entirety the official narrative which was composed by cicero and practically embodied wholesale in sallust and most other historians we should regard the participation of crassus in the designs of catiline as most improbable We are told that the leader of the plot was a monster of depravity, a sort of malignant demon in human form, who, after spending his early years in murdering his relatives and debauching all the youth of Rome, wished in his middle age to inaugurate a reign of caedase and incendium, to massacre the Senate, burn the city, and rule as a tyrant among the corpses and the smoking ruins. If there were any truth in all this, we should conclude that Crassus, as the largest householder in rome was not likely to be privy to a plan for wholesale incendiarism and as the greatest creditor in the city would hardly wish to massacre a senate in which a vast number of the members owed him large sums of money but cicero himself furnishes us with much evidence for doubting his own narrative if catiline was such a notorious villain it is odd that the orator should have proposed to run with him as a joint candidate for the consulship and have offered to defend him when he was going to be indicted for extortion in his late province of Africa. Still stranger are Cicero's statements in the Caelio, where, defending a friend of the conspirator, he remarks that he was always meeting Catiline in the best society. I thought him a good citizen and esteemed him for the many eminent virtues which he seemed to possess. If it was possible for Cicero to make such allegations with any show of good faith, it is clear that Catiline cannot have been the social pariah who is described in the orator's speeches of B.C. 63. Evidently, the fluent consul, thinking his own neck in danger, had painted his foe and all concerned with him in very lurid colours. End of section 14